This special episode of The Fern Line is brought to you by The Hoarding Marmot, Anchorage's finest technical outdoor consignment shop located in the Hardest Menard. Looking for climbing gear? Check. Cross-country and downhill ski equipment? Check. Maps, guidebooks, yummy trail snacks, and other essential bits and pieces? You bet. Stop by The Hoarding Marmot next time you roll through town or check them out online at hoardingmarmot.com. This episode is also sponsored by Alaska Rock Gym, providing quality indoor climbing to the Anchorage community since 1995. With over 20,000 square feet of climbing, multifaceted boulder terrain, expanded fitness and yoga rooms, plus clean, spacious, and modern locker rooms, stop by any time to take a tour of the facility or check them out online at alaskarockgym.com. All right, let's get to the show. Hey, what's up, everyone? In this episode of The Fern Line, I check in with author and climber Chris Kalman. I first met Chris after reading his excellent book, As Above, So Below, and since then we've stayed in touch, connected through climbing and creativity. So I was excited the other day when Chris announced a Kickstarter to help finish up his new novella, Damned If You Don't. Damned If You Don't tells the story of a deeply conflicted photographer who tries to save La Huanco, a remote valley in Patagonia and Chile, by showing the world how beautiful it is. But in showing the world how beautiful it is, he inadvertently puts La Huanco in peril, including a rare and mysterious salamander whose sudden appearance there forces the scientific community to rethink its understanding of evolutionary biology and possibly human history itself. Chris and I recently caught up to talk about his creative process, some philosophical discussions about the role of conservation in the outdoor community, as well as some fun talk just about climbing. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. I started by asking Chris to give a synopsis of what Damned If You Don't is about. Imagine that John Muir exists in you know the year 2020 or something and he finds this place not yosemite but some remote valley in patagonia somewhere and he falls in love with it and he soon discovers that the river that runs through the valley is slated for a dam so instead of Hetch Hetchy, it's this this other valley with this other river. And that dam is going to absolutely destroy the place. So he does the natural thing for any conservationist to do. He starts contacting publications, uh, taking lots of photos, writing articles about it, trying to tell the world what's at stake here. Because most people just don't know. They don't know the place at all. But this isn't like the 18 late 1800s or early 1900s uh this is the 21st century and we have social media and instagram and uh things word travels very very quickly and so the result of 
these efforts ends up being fairly problematic in their own right, as this place that was once very remote and isolated goes from that to, you know, very popular worldwide tourist destination essentially overnight. That's that's kind of the uh, the synopsis. Mm-hmm. And what I really want to get across is not everything is screwed or messed up and there's no way forward. Rather, I just want to encourage people to sort of reflect on the fact that we're not there yet. Mm-hmm. You know, like the American National <clears throat> Park System is a step in the right direction, but it's certainly not the ultimate step. And mm-hmm. there's there's still a long way to go. Yeah. Yeah. So talk about your personal experience that might have morphed the inspiration for this book. I think it was back in 2010. I was kind of a homeless dirtbag working on a pot farm in Southern Oregon. Uh, Didn't really have anything going for me in life. And I was trying to figure out what I wanted my life to be about. Um, A good friend of mine, who's still one of my best friends today, Grant Simmons, he found this Alpinist magazine with an article about this valley in Southern Chile called Cochamo. And he said, hey, man, let's let's go here this winter. And I kind of hemmed and hawed, but eventually decided to go. And that kicked off a love affair that uh, persists to this day. I've been to Cochamo seven times now uh, since 2010. And it's become a very, very important place to me. Perhaps one of, if not the most important places in the world. Uh, for me. And that's because uh, I've, I've had really impactful experiences there personally, as far as like, you know, climbing and putting up new routes and meeting incredible people. But I've also seen during my time there, that there's a real need in Cochamo for help. And it's because it's not a national park, and it's not like a UNESCO World Heritage Site, it's mostly a collection of private parcels. And visitation is increasing exponentially and has been ever since I first went there. And while the local community and business owners that like own the campgrounds and um, various little guide services, uh, while they're doing an incredible job sustaining the, the place, Um, and mitigating the impacts of the visitation, there's only so much they can do. I mean, just imagine somewhere like the size of Yosemite, but with no trail crew, with no uh, law enforcement presence or rangers, there's no uh, real interpretive presence or ability to disseminate, leave no trace principles, things like that. Um, The the task is overwhelming and daunting. And in a very real sense, what Cochamo will one day be and what it is now are two very different things. And so my, my connection with Cochamo has changed from sort of personal, uh, like a personal selfish, like desire to have fun, which is still there. And I, I mean, I still love going down there just for fun but it's kind of more from that more into a question of how can I help the local people and bolster their efforts to 
preserve and protect the cultural and ecological resources of this place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that kind of makes me want to ask like a little bit of a bigger question that has to do with like the responsibility of climbers. I would say that, you know, just based off what I what I know and, you know, it seems like there's a growing percentage of the general climbing population, whether you're a rock climber, an ice climber, an alpinist, or all of the above, that there's more, there's a growing awareness that, you know, as climbers, we have a responsibility to take care of our planet, you know, to take care mm -hmm. and to protect the, pl the places that we cherish um, right. for future generations. And, and um, you know, after writing this book and probably doing a lot of your own self-reflection, like what, what do you think the, the responsibility of the climbing community should be moving forward? And maybe that's a really big question, but. No, I think it's a, a really good question. Um, <clears throat> I can't speak for anyone else, but for me personally, it would be impossible not to constantly question the results of my choices because I make my living as a writer. Um, and a lot of that work is in the climbing industry. So, you know, anytime I write an article about somewhere, whether it's um, somewhere in the United States or somewhere else, I'm asking the question, what's the result of that article? Is it going to increase visitation to that area? Is that increase sustainable? Is it desired by the local people? Um, there are lots of different questions and and possible impacts as well as far as the responsibility for climbers and for the climbing industry i think is really re where this question points we we all profit and benefit from uh the places that we love to play and if we're only profiting and we're not giving back and we're not working towards sustaining those places then we're straight up exploiting them. And if that's the case, then I would say 99% of us out there are hypocrites because we're all going to, we're all going to sort of posture as if we're out there to protect these places, but it's got to go way beyond words. You know, it has to come back to action. So getting back to Kochimo, and I think we touched on this, you know, briefly, you know, when I asked you about your inspiration for the book, you know, you, you kind of had your own quandaries with this as far as your own impacts on, on Coach Mo. And I know that you had mentioned, like, you know, I kind of feel like an imposter. Like, why should a, guy, a, you know, a white guy from the United States be saying anything about this place? <laughs> um, can you just talk a little bit about where you've come to with that? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> where I've come to is there's no perfect answer. And, and even aside from the fact that, you know, Cochamo's in Chile and I'm here in the States, you got to understand that anytime one individual takes it upon his or herself to speak for another place, that's problematic. That, that's why we have democracies, right? Instead of just outright dictatorships is because thus far, what we feel is the best model for representation is is a democratic process in which lots of voices are heard. So I just try and keep in mind that one, I'm not Chilean. Two, I don't even if I were, I don't I don't own Cochamo or the valley there. 
three, even if I were a property owner down there, I still don't own it. So when I'm speaking about Cochamo or trying to um, raise awareness about, you know, some possible problems that are going on there, I'm trying to keep myself out of it as much as possible and reflect what is a uh, preponderance of the voices from the local community. And I think you could get super philosophical and be like, well, should the local community have more of an opinion in this than some other community? And I I don't really want to get super philosophical about that. I think just from a very pragmatic standpoint, local communities, especially small gateway ones like Cochamo, they tend to be overpowered by larger government bureaucratic agencies. And so, and this is, this is one direction that I think the future of conservation can go in is, you know, in the United States, national parks, like we call that America's best idea, but national parks were built upon the removal of indigenous peoples from their lands. That's not a great idea. It's a horrible idea. And I think that the record will show that indigenous peoples have almost universally done a better job of conserving the ecosystems they live in than, um, you know, uh, like uh, white settlers, essentially, or colonialists, or however you want to say it. So what would be a better idea than national parks? Well, a better idea would be um, you take take a place that has people living in it and has had people living that same group of people living there for thousands of years and you empower them to continue their ancestral knowledge and continue to sustain those ecosystems you know that i think is kind of the direction we can go in um, and need to go in if we want conservation to be anything other than just you know more greenwashing right Let's switch gears and let's talk a little bit about the creative process of the writing. So talk a little bit about how you think you've developed as a writer uh, since you you published As Above, So Below. And what do you think the outcome of that is with this new book? That's a great question. And I'll try and be concise in my answer. <laughs> um as Above, so, so Below came from a very raw place inside of me. And it was primarily emotion-driven. It, like, the majority of the book was was written over a two or three night period where I was, like, getting out of bed and drinking alcohol. I don't even know, like, port or whiskey or something. And just writing feverishly because I had this sort of angst and frustration and sadness in me that I needed to get out. In that sense, it was very, I would say it was like far more intuitive than Damned If You Don't has been. Damned If You Don't is kind of the culmination of all of this thinking that I've been doing about conservation and Cochamo and what the future of that place might look like and what the future of a place like that could look like if, you know, if we got our acts together. So in that sense, it was, you know, I've been thinking about this for much longer than I thought about As Above, So Below. And it was sort of 
rather than being emotion driven, it was more ideas driven. And I hope that's not to the detriment of the book. Um, you know, you really don't know until people start reading it and giving you feedback. Right. Well, speaking of feedback, you know, I'm looking at some of the early reviews. Uh, I'll read this one from Kelly Cordes. says, I'm generally a slow reader. What a horrible admission for a writer. But I finished Damned If You Don't in a single sitting. It was really engaging, thought-provoking, and layered, deep and complex. I thoroughly enjoyed it and was eager to keep reading. Well done! So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, it sounds like even though you know, you've taken maybe a different approach as far as it not being so like, quote unquote, emotional, you've still, you know, been able to find a way to keep it interesting and attention getting and, and, and a page turner and um, to maybe talk about how, you know, how do you achieve that balance? So I wanted this to be a short story, like a novella, the same way that As Above, So Below was. And so as soon as you're talking about a piece of writing that's you know, 20 to 30,000 words. I mean, I think it's going to be a bit of a page turner as long as the writing isn't terrible, simply because people have that sense of imminence as they go through the book. It's not like you pick, you're, you're picking up like Anna Karenina and you're like, you read a, a hundred pages and you're like, okay, well, this is going to take months. You know, I, I think because people can see that the end's in sight, they're already kind of drawn in from the start. And that's very intentional on my behalf. So that's part of it. And then the other part is, I feel like it's very important to give your reader the things they need to feel like they're in good hands. That means if there's a single comma out of place, that's a huge mistake. Um, If there's you know, any kinds of typos. If there's any, like, if you repeat the word translucent two paragraphs in a row, I mean, that's going to, like, as a writer, you're creating a spell. This guise that you know what you're doing and that they're in good hands. As soon as you make a mistake, the spell's broken and somebody remembers, oh, that's right. I'm not reading, like, uh, some famous author from the 1920s. I'm reading Chris Kalman. Who, who knows who this guy is and why am I reading this instead of, you know, uh, Tolstoy or something, <laughs> right? So you can't, you can't make any mistakes. And I think that if you don't make mistakes, if you're really careful with the writing, people get drawn along naturally because that's what good writing is. I mean, it's a good experience. It's like having a story told to you in a bar by someone who doesn't say, um, and, uh, a lot. Mm-hmm, right. <laughs> How how long um, did this book take you to write? Well, it's a really funny question because, you know, in a sense, I've been thinking about it uh, since 2010. Um, I would say I started writing it not long after uh, As Above, So Below came out in print. Uh, maybe like six months after that, which would put this in somewhere like late 2017 or early 2018. I mean, I'm not a professional, and and as much as I would like to just do this as my job, I find time where I can in chunks. And I remember I was, I want to say this was like six months ago or maybe nine, I wasn't making progress on the book, and it was 
really frustrating me and I was starting to feel terrible about myself. And so I just started setting my alarm an hour earlier every morning and I did something that I never do, which is I started drinking coffee or tea in the morning Mm -hmm. because I don't really do caffeine. It just jacks me up. But I started doing it because I was like, you know what, I need to I need to get words on the page. And I kind of pumped out most of the book over that period. And this was my second draft. I had actually already done almost a full draft and was super fortunate to have uh, Craig Childs helping me out with the editing. And I sent that draft over to Craig Childs and he essentially was like, this is garbage. (laughs) I mean, he didn't say it in those (laughs) words, but he might as well have. So I started from scratch. Um, but it was super valuable. I mean, the feedback he gave me was spot on. I wouldn't have started over if it wasn't. And so, yeah, most of it was done in that period of just forcefully rousing myself an hour earlier, drinking some sort of caffeinated beverage and working on the book before I actually went to work for the day. Cool. I mean, I know you're your own worst critic, but how do you feel about the book? Well, I feel really good about it, but it's not done yet. So that's one of the things people should understand about the Kickstarter is, okay, the book's done. It has it's all the bones are in place and it has a start, a middle and a finish, you know, but I'm going to be very, very painstakingly editing every last word, just the way I described earlier until the 11th hour. And there's some work that I need to do. You know, there's, there are scenes that could be made slightly more believable by removing a tiny bit of hyperbole. There are characters that could be made more relatable by making them slightly less cliched. Um, You know, little things that I think, you know, Kelly had the response he did and and most of the early readers have had a, a good response. I could just finish, I could just say I'm done. And I think most people would say, hey, that was pretty good. You know, that was a, that was a really good book. But that's, that's really not what I'm going for. You know, I, I'm trying to create the best possible book out of this idea and this story that I can. And so there's, a, there's work left to do. <laughs> and um, I'm, just, I'm just hoping to get it done as soon as possible so that, you know, if and when the Kickstarter is successful, all the backers get their rewards as, you know, in as timely a fashion as mm-hmm. possible. And what is your, um, your kind of hopeful timeline for finishing the book and publishing it? Well, um, I've got my copy editor, Lindsay Nelson. She's awesome. She's lined up for January uh, 5th through 15th. And that's pretty much the last step. So, I'm hoping the book gets sent off to the printers by January 15th. And I think there's about a two or three month turnaround on that typically, but of course in COVID times, who knows? Um, But, you know, getting, getting books and prints to backers sometime in the spring. um, I think that's still, I think that's like the likely and probable goal. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Um, All right. Let's, uh, Let's just switch gears here and let's just, I want to talk to you a little bit about climbing. We'll just cleanse the palate. 
Sure. So you're you're still living in Arizona? Yeah. Yeah. Right. What what have you been? Uh, how's the climbing been down there? Well, without uh, risking getting my tires slashed here by by angry locals, um, the climbing. <laughs> I really like the climbing here. Yeah. Why are you always uh, getting into situations like that with locals, Chris? Oh, uh, I don't know. I it might be I think I think just by sort of random circumstance, I've ended up a couple of times in places that haven't blown up yet, but are maybe on the cusp of becoming popular. And and like I'm not saying I'm innocent, but it's also a little unfair to pin it on me because you know, climbing's exploding as a sport everywhere in the country. So kind of no matter where I landed, you know, unless it was like the gunks or, you know, Yosemite or some somewhere that everyone already knows, um, you know, I'd be a, a pretty obvious scapegoat as soon as I opened my mouth or wrote anything about the place I was living. <laughs> but to answer your question, um, Arizona is protected by, uh, or at least Northern Arizona where I climb is protected by a reputation for Choss and it's somewhat well-deserved. Uh, I won't kind of expand on the exceptions to that, but I've just kind of learned to like the Choss. I've been climbing in a Canyon here kind of all summer that is really like very soft rock and Sandy, like, the whole like I climbed there with a friend the other day and he was like gosh that whole that jug was like covered in sand and I was I don't even notice that crap anymore (laughs) um so I'm very grateful for where I am because I can go to these beautiful places and really not see another climber hiker anyone nine times out of ten and if I ever do see someone it's generally someone I know Mm mm-hmm I, I like talking to you about climbing because I know that you, the word that comes to mind is you like cerebral climbing that makes you think. Yeah. And so I think for you, that would mean, you know, cl- climbs that require like different kinds of moves, like maybe some crack climbing, you know, right. maybe, maybe some like thin face climbing, may, you know, maybe some overhanging, like what's a, yeah. what's some climbing that you've done that's, uh, that's challenged you in that way recently? Well, I think that my dream climb or my dream climbing experience is some sort of ground up on-site attempt on a gear protected face. You know, cracks are beautiful and I have a great respect for cracks, but you kind of, you know, if you have a hundred feet of 0.75s, you know, it's going to be heinous and every single move is going to be heinous. Right. And if you have a hundred feet of number twos, you're like, well, I probably don't even need to bring gear because I've got a number two on the end of each wrist. So, but like you take a gear protected face and okay. So like a sport climb is kind of the same way, right? You might not know how to do the moves, but you don't have any concern for your safety because you're like bolt, 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 bolt. And between the bolts, I can fall. So fine, whatever. But a gear protected face, you kind of are at the bottom and you're like, I don't know how I'm going to get to the top. And I also don't know what the experience is going to be like. And I also don't know how safe or, or dangerous it's going to be. So I have to have all of my faculties intact and I have to be really on point. And that experience for me is what really drives me to climbing because 
life is full of distractions. You know, it's like if on a typical work day, I might be simultaneously working and thinking about 12 different projects at the same time, which I really dislike. Um, you go climbing and everything except for that one perfect route disappears. And it's, it's just a meditation. That's all. Um, and there's tons of climbing like that in Northern Arizona, just, just like an endless supply of, um, really somewhat spicy, like gear protected routes with devious sequences and runouts and, you know, just something to get your attention. Cool. What's a climb that you've kind of seen happen, you know, just somewhere in the community recently that has stood out to you where you've been like, wow, that's really, Mm. really significant and pretty cool to see. I think there's been this really cool trend of people doing things closer to home, like Seb Berta, I think is how you pronounce it. And Nico Favrese did the uh, Alpine trilogy in the Alps earlier this summer. And that's like these five, these three, five, 14 big Alpine walls that are, they're like, you know, all time life list for most people, (laughs) you know, it's like, if you can do the trilogy in your life, that's kind of like this incredible thing. And they just did it in a summer uh, by bicycle with dogs because uh, Nico <laughs> had just gotten this puppy. Um, that's awesome. And they added like one or two more, like wow. 514 big walls. Damn. And th- th- I just think that's so cool because, you know, in our industry, there's this tendency to just be like, well, let's, let's go fly halfway across the world to some valley no one's ever been in. And then, uh, we'll take a bunch of pictures and tell everyone how cool it is. And -and so-and-so will climb something. But in many cases, I mean, I've put up some, you know, 10 to 20, like, uh, routes of, you know, a thousand feet or more. A lot of the time, the, the crux of that is just being, sort of wealthy and privileged enough to get to a place people don't go to that often. You know, the climbing itself isn't that difficult often um, because you got a whole wall to choose from and you just choose the best line. Doing something like this Alpine trilogy in a summer, you know, the everyone's had access to that and the, and the great climbers of, of the past generations have, have set the bar and often, you know, like doing a new route in the Karakoram or something might be way less impressive than repeating an old Voitech Kurtika route. <laughs> Probably most times out of, out of 10, it's going to be. So I just think that's super cool that, that people are going and repeating these uh, standard setting old routes. And I'll just add one more. Um, this is super recent. Seb Bouin, a uh, French climber just did the first or just did the second ascent of Akira, which is this old uh, route that Fred Ruling put up in France that was super futuristic roof climbing at the time. (laughs) And I remember watching it on, you know, in some climbing video. And anyway, Fred proposed a 515B grade for that route even though the highest grade in the world at that time was 14D. And uh, 
Seb just climbed it and he downgraded it to 14D. (laughs) And I think that's really interesting. You know, I just think that's super fascinating because even though he downgraded it, still it's taken like 25 years or something to get a repeat. So where was everyone else, right? Well, probably the answer is everyone else was using sponsor dollars to like go do something new because that's what the media is hyped about. Mm -hmm. And nobody, nobody gets hyped about second ascents. But often they're like as impressive as a first ascent. Cool. And uh, since we're chatting, you've been doing a little bit more podcasting with the American Alpine Club. And maybe just give me your take on, you know, what what you enjoy about that. And um, is it something you think you're going to maybe keep doing? Well, I really, gosh, I mean, it's you look at good interviewers and it's the same as watching a great a great climber. They make it look effortless. Um, and, you know, it just like a great interviewer, like Terry Gross or something, you're just like, oh, well, that was just this conversation. But it's not. Like, you have to be able to – you've got to be able to get your, your guest to say things that are deeply honest, very personal – and very compelling to the listeners. And generally, that's something that requires some coaxing, is what I've found. And uh, like you and I, Evan, we're friends now. And, and so, you know, this interview, I'm assuming, is probably a little bit easier f- for you. But the first time you interviewed me, we didn't know each other. And I went, I've listened to that interview a number of times. And I just was so impressed by the questions you asked and like, the tone of voice and the way you manage the interview. Cause I kind of feel like you were casting a spell on me in this, <laughs> you know, in the same way that I'm trying to do as an author, like you as an interviewer, uh, you just seem to be chill out there, but you're getting me to, to talk about these really interesting subjects. So it's an art. And, um, well, there's a lot, I, a lot of clever editing involved too. But. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm not as interested in the editing because I'm an, I'm a total Luddite and I hate technology. Dude, editing um, sucks, man. Yeah. But I really do enjoy being able to have these conversations with um, climbers all over the world. And like, yeah, I mean, I, I got to interview uh, Nico uh, to talk about that Alpine trilogy. So, I mean, that's a that's a real privilege to be able to talk to some of these super fascinating and really talented climbers and hear their stories. Right. Yeah. Well, it's, I, I was just curious um, to kind of hear your take. Cause I, I know, I know you've been doing more and more and more of that work and I, I'm not surprised that you, like you push yourself as a climber, like you push yourself as a writer, you know, you're wanting to push yourself as an interviewer as well, because it, it really is a skill. Um, and I, I will self-disclose something here. I don't do, a lot of self-disclosure on the fern line. I never have it because it, you know, because the podcast, it's not about me. Uh, but the place that I got my interview skills was when I was in my early to mid twenties into my early thirties, I worked as a social worker and I worked as in a, uh, like a long-term drug and alcohol treatment facility for adolescents. So I didn't have a college degree and I still don't have a college degree, 
so I kind of got that job at the ground level, but I, I, I had some amazing supervisors who were like, you know, um, licensed clinical social workers and like PhD psychologists. And they taught me how to communicate with people, like doing individual conversations and being a part of like group therapy. And that's how I learned to be an interviewer. And it has totally aided me in my current profession as a podcast producer and, you know, interviewer. <laughs> yeah, that's super cool, man. Yeah. I, I don't know if you're going to keep that in, but I hope you do because um, I think it kind of speaks speaks volumes about you. And I think it's also very revealing about um, what it takes to be a good interviewer, you know, because we're all kind of... <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I can, if this is really accurate or not, but like, I was going to say, we're all kind of troubled adolescents on the inside. Oh you know? yeah. I'm all fucked everyone, up. <laughs> right. And everyone that you interview is fucked up and, and yeah. like, we're all out there sort of insecure, a little bit worried about what the world thinks about us. But at the same time, we want to share who we are with the world and be accepted. Right. So being able to manage those two different things, um, in your interview subjects is, is a real art. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would just say, you know, we'll give, give a few more of my little, any little nuggets I have is for anybody who's interested in interviewing. It's a, it's all about creating a comfortable environment for the person that you're interviewing. Like they need, they need to feel as comfortable and, you know, safe as possible. Um, and the other thing is, this is really basic, but a lot of people don't don't really understand this, is you have to ask open-ended questions. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people just they ask people questions that are kind of they're setting them up, setting them up to say yes or no. When right. really if you want to get somebody to talk, ask them to share an experience, you know? Yeah. Yeah. What was this like for you? How did that make you feel? And it's a uh, it's like really basic stuff like that that's like game changer for being an interviewer. All right. Well, thanks for hanging out with me today. Hope you enjoyed the conversation and I hope you're interested to check out some of Chris's writing. To find out about Damned If You Don't, you can go to kickstarter.com and search Chris Kalman, Damned If You Don't. And that's damned, D-A-M-M-E-D. I'll also leave a link to the Kickstarter campaign in the show notes. As always, I want to give a special thank you to all my Patreon supporters and an extra special thank you to Leo Franchi, who supports the show each month at the executive producer level. To become a subscriber over on Patreon, just head on over to patreon.com slash firmline. Finally, I want to give a shout out to my sponsors, The Hoarding Marmot and The Alaska Rock Gym. Could not do this podcast without your continued support. All right, well, take care of yourselves, everyone. Enjoy the snow. Enjoy the holidays. And we'll catch you next time on The Fern Line.